Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B coming to you today from Sticky Morning in Singapore on a national holiday. What holiday is it, Mike? It's uh, Labor Day. Labor Day. So that would make it the 1st of May. Mike Sutcliffe is my guest. Mike Sutcliffe is a guy who, 20 years ago this week, I, a little shithead from Ireland, came out to Singapore to live, and Mike very kindly put me up for about a year. You did pay rent. I did pay rent. He used to give out to me about leaving glasses of water <laughs> around for the dengue uh, mosquitoes to swim and breed in. And we used to spend most of our evenings um, watching Father Ted. Yes, I was probably the that. Dougal Maguire to your Jack Hackett or something. <laughs> <laughs> Father Ted. And uh, it's The Simpsons, I remember. Yeah, we used to just come Simpsons. in drunk and watch about two hours <laughs> worth of those. I also just remember you dressing up in your Manchester United kit to watch the, the weekend games. It, well, that was, the, that was the famous Man United-Liverpool Cantona final that we watched in, in our house in yeah. Olina Lodge, Holland Hill. Oh, so I'm here today to find out what the hell has happened to Mike since, because I, I was in uh, Molly Malone's bar in um, Singapore uh, two nights ago, and behind a drum kit, as he was back then, was Mike Sutcliffe, now sporting a rather impressive beard. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Sean. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, because you told me you're not really in the ad bank game. Yeah, anymore. not really. So, I mean, after, God, th- I think it was 32 years, it ended up being, of being yeah. yeah, from... 1983 in London as a copywriter at J. Walter Thompson, which is where I started. Did 10 years there, then moved with JWT out to Bangkok, did two years there. Right. Um, and then came down here uh, to Singapore, and um, a guy called Andrew Kefford, who was a headhunter at the time, introduced me to a chap called Wolfgang Huff, oh, who was a wonderful crazy Wolfgang. And uh, I'd wanted to leave Bangkok, wanted to get out of Bangkok. Because it was, yeah, I was, I'm an English writer, or right. I was an English writer. So this guy, Andrew Kefford, who was a headhunter, said, there's this company called Wonderman. I'm not sure you're right for them. I don't think they're right for you, but go and talk to them anyway. And that right. was how I met Wolfgang. And Wolfgang and I worked together for seven, eight years at, yeah. at, at Wonderman. And we built the office from 18 people to 120. And it was, had an amazing time. And he was one of those people who I would have followed him absolutely anywhere. Yeah, he was great fun. He was one of the last kind of guys who you could who believed that it was important to have yes. a great teamwork and camaraderie yeah, yeah. and... Also, you know, that time in Singapore was just great fun. I mean, it just—it was. You worked really hard and really late, but yeah. you party just as uh, hard yeah. and just as late. <laughs> I remember a lot of table dancing in Elvis. But that was good. You've kind of pushed through your whole career in about a minute, which is great. Because I didn't really want to talk so much about advertising as <laughs> well, I said yeah, at the start. There, there was stuff after Where that. Was, so you're, you're from Yorkshire. What was what was your um, childhood like? Uh, I'm from Harrogate, which is in North Yorkshire. I was there for 18 years yeah. and uh, it, was really, it was really good actually I, mean, I went to a, a very minor Methodist public school right. despite not being a Methodist <laughs> and it was okay I mean I was, I was never a good academic and I'm still a terrible academic Put What people, were your folks at? What, what, what? So my dad was in the chemical industry okay. so he, he, was, uh, he did sort of sales and marketing for, for chemicals and sort of industrial soaps and defoamers and all, all okay. this sort of stuff which I never understood and, uh, and my mum was a teacher and mm. she ended up I mean from sort of 1977 onwards she was a headmistress we opened our own prep school and so there, was a, there was a gap in the market which they saw and they bought a large property and sort of mortgaged themselves up to the hilt at the time uh, bought this very large building and uh, set up a prep school. It's still going? It's still going. Oh. I mean, we, they sold it probably eight years ago, maybe ten years ago. Cool. And uh, so mum's retired and very happily retired. Dad sadly passed away in 2011. Yeah, so growing up in Harrogate was great. And that was kind of where I got my first taste of music as well. Right. Um, I was friends with a 
kid at school who had loads of money, and he still has he has even more money now. He was one of Michael Dell's sort of chosen f- partners. Yeah, yeah, chosen few. Right. Uh, but anyway, so Mark, Mark Jarvis was his name, and he had this amazing music collection because he could afford to go out every week and buy you know the the. He was the fifty pound a week guy. For his Absolutely, and he was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it was the bass player of my first ever band. We were terrible. I mean, really, what really, epically bad. We were called Cloud Nine. Oh, okay. Not so bad, very much yeah. for, a, for a first band. I was also in a band called the Debonair Bullfrogs, which I quite, always quite that like. That's also a good name. <laughs> so you always playing the drums. Yeah, I started How drumming. How did you get into the drums? Uh, because when I was about, again, that's at the 12, 13 mark, someone introduced me to The Who. started off liking the music, and then I started to hear all about this guy, Keith Moon. Who right. was crazy and you know, nuts and a brilliant drummer and was everything I wanted to be. I thought, well, that's it. I could be a drummer. I bought but there my... is always that the child getting the drum kit problem. My parents didn't believe in that. Yeah. So um, I had to, I did a paper round and I worked uh, weekends in a No, shop. I know most, but what I mean is most parents, it's not a drum kit. No way are you having a drum kit. It's <laughs> one of the most noisy things in the, you know, you yeah. just hammer the crap out of it. No, I don't know. I mean, they, they didn't really have much say in it because they weren't buying it for me. Yeah. I, I went out and I, I saved and scrimped, but, you know, did all these weekend jobs yeah. to buy my first snare drum, which right, I right. finally got actually on the day of my 14th birthday. Right. I think my parents chipped in the last at 10 quid or whatever it was going to take yeah. to buy this snare drum. And that made me a drummer. I now had a, a drum. But you had one drum. I had one drum. Right. Um, so I quickly got the other bits and I had this awful sort of mishmash drum kit that had the snare drum. I bought some horrible old bass drum from somewhere and a tom from somewhere else and got right. some cheap ass cymbals. So, yeah, so I had, I had a, all the stuff and that's when I started gigging. You know, and my mum or daddy used to have to drop me off at the gigs. Are you self taught? Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I actually had tried to have lessons about a year ago and it was too late. <laughs> I, I mean, so many bad habits that, yeah, yeah they can't it's teach like me. golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you swing a certain yeah, way, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was nothing they could teach me. And what, so t- tell me a bit more about your method of schooling. What, what did you what, what did you end up? You said you weren't that great a student, but did you go to college or no? no. Well, I sort of did. I, I mean, I, so I, I ended up. I did A level. You know, I got o, six O levels, three A levels, and then fought very hard to not do anything for a year. I mean, to not go to to. I could have gone to a poly or a college or whatever. Yeah. And I fought very hard not to do that. And my parents, fair, you know, fair play to them, said, "Okay, you've got a year. If you can't work out what you want to do in that year." You'll, you'll go to a, you know, a university or a, a poly or something. Right. So, okay, fair enough. And in that year, I discovered advertising and decided that was what I wanted to do. Part of it was because I interned. I was like the tea boy at Ogilvy and Mather in Glasgow. Right. Because it was a bit of nepotism. My uncle was the chairman. And I, I, and I literally would make the tea and do errands. And what age were you? 18, 19? Yeah, 18. Yeah, I started at 18 in Ogilvy yeah. as well, weirdly enough. That's not far off the T boy. Yeah. So that was in Glasgow. This was the days when, yeah, we were still hot metal metal printing. I'd have to take yeah. the print blocks down to the printers, which was down near the docks in Glasgow. And I tell you what, at nine nine thirty in the morning, that was a very interesting experience because they really always openers. well, yeah, they opened yeah. the pubs at like yeah, yeah. five a.m. to give the guys coming off the night shift yeah. a drink. Yeah, yeah. So they'd be drunk by nine thirty. Yeah. yeah, they'd be the loads of drunks in, in Glasgow. You know, Repro Masters and Letraset and Cowgum and all those things. Oh, yeah. just sort of gradually. This, this was a long time before that. Yeah, so this was uh, 1980. So how long did you spend in Glasgow? Oh, not long. It was right. like yeah, probably a month or two, and then I went and worked on a sheep farm in the borders of Scotland. Paul McCartney? <laughs> no, it was, well, it was Lord. <laughs> Joined Lord, Wings. It was Lord Vesty's estate actually. Oh. He used to fly in by helicopter every now and again. So you shepherd? Check. Yeah, look, he used to look after the sheep. God, it was a nightmare. So, uh, so what did a shepherd do? Like, uh, you, you didn't sit out in the fields like olden St. Patrick days. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of you know, moving sheep from one place to another. Right. Yeah, did you have a little sheep dog that you could whistle at? Yeah, we had, oh, I couldn't whistle at them, but right. the, the the guy who ran the farm could whistle at them and they'd do what he wanted to do. It's extraordinary that like sheep dog trials were so big that TV show. Yeah, one man and his dog. One yes. man and his dog. Those of you listening from obviously uh, when we were growing up there was a show called One Man and His Dog, which is about a uh, you know, a sheep dog trial. So how quick how quickly can your you rally your dog to rally the sheep into a pen, basically? Yeah, yeah. Across different obstacle courses and through different yeah, gates. Bizarre, mental. Thing. Really, like that <laughs> had huge viewership at the time. Antiques Roadshow, bang, bang, bang. That's, that's, that was Sunday, yes, evening. Sunday evening. Why you haven't done your homework? You must be watching this. <laughs> oh dear. You were yeah. into football as well, right? Leeds, was it? Yeah, at the time. Well, actually, funnily enough, weirdly enough, when I started out, when I first got interested in football, I was a rabid Chelsea fan. So when I was about, and then you became a Leeds fan. Well, no, no, I was never really a Leeds fan. Okay, but, but yeah. So Chelsea was when I was like nine or ten, and I, because I love Peter Osgood. There are pictures of me somewhere of me in, in the Peter Osgood kit, right. the number nine on. I wanted to be Peter Osgood. Yeah. I don't know why. I just yeah. thought he was amazing. Yeah, he was very. Best striker for a couple of seasons. Yeah, back exactly. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember going to see Leeds, that great Leeds team with Billy Bremner and Alan Clark yeah. and all those guys. I went to go and see them play at Ellen Road, and I do remember that being a, a pretty good day. Actually, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was great. I got all the autographs somewhere of all that team. Did you? Really? Yeah. So then, what, after um, Glasgow, what happened? I thought that advertising's great because it seemed to be a lot of fun. Yeah. They all hung out together. They all went, got drunk together. They yeah. seemed to really enjoy what they're doing. I said, well, "Advertising's for me." Yeah. So, but I knew I wanted to do something kind of like on the writing side because it was the only thing I was actually ever any good at at, at school was writing English. Right. Um, and somebody said, "Well, have you heard about copywriting? You should go do a copywriting course." Oh, right. that sounds interesting. And at the time, and I think it still almost is the only one in the UK. There's there's a course in Watford, and it's a one year course in advertising writing. Right. And I. Got the they applied and they sent you a copy test. Got the copy test, did it, and sent it off. Didn't think much more about it. And I got a letter back saying, "Come down for an interview." Right. So again, my dad. I think my dad took me down to Watford. I went and met this guy uh, for for an hour. And at the end of it, he said, "Do you have any questions for me?" I said, "Yes." Did I get the place? He said, "Yes, you did." So, and that was it. So I did one year at Watford, um, and it, and I literally joined JWT the day I left Watford because wow. they came out and said they came out and said as a brief. It was supposed to be for a six-week placement for one. It ended up being a six-month placement for two. So me and this other guy okay. who, who was on the course, we got to work at JMT for six months. And I was still there ten years later. Wow. Yeah. And what made you come out to Singapore? Uh, well, but it, well, first it was Bangkok. So start off sort of mid-80s when WPP bought JWT, yeah. their first big acquisition. And bless them, yeah, they decided that it was being run very badly, which I'm sure it probably was. But their sort of way around that was to cut 10% of the staff every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And when I started, there were 850 people there. Right. So, yeah, on one day, so nearly 100 people lost yeah. their jobs. And they did the same thing once or twice a year yeah. for four years. Same in Ogilvy. Yeah, well, so the, the, the morale was horrific. Yeah. And so one Christmas we got the call to come around and see Nick and Billy, who were the, the, the CDs. They said, you're doing okay. Billy McWinnie. Billy McWinnie yeah, and Nick Billy. Welsh, yeah, yeah. So uh, they said, look, you're okay, you've you got your jobs, you kept your jobs. And then I went back to my desk and I got a call and said, can you come back and see them on your own? I was like, oh my God, what have I done? So they said, look, there's a position out in Bangkok. Would you be interested in going to be CD out in JWT Bangkok? So what time does the plane leave? <laughs> yeah, because it was a really bad time. Yeah. Um, and so I was really, really keen to go. It was go like out. a parachute. In a way, yeah, it was yeah. great. And I just yeah, literally stepped off the plane, was kind of, had a sort of almost creative rebirth and felt sort of alive again and yeah. was surrounded. It was like travelling back in time. Mm. Clients had money and yeah, the energy in the agency was there. A lot of really bright young creatives in Thailand. Yeah. I mean, you know what Thai creatives are like. I, we have that in common as well, living in uh, Bangkok, because I lived there after 
uh, I, I, we worked lived yeah. together here. I went up to Bangkok in about 2004. But yeah, great city. Amazing place. Yeah. I mean, crazy. Ninety-three yeah. no, like, was madness. One of those places where you just kind of—it's good to have lived there, you know. It's yeah. like one of those places you don't want to really go back and live there, but it was good to have lived there. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I always say I grew up in Bangkok. I mean, I was okay. thirty years old, yeah. but I didn't know anything. I thought I did, and I really didn't. Yeah. And I had absolutely no worldview. I didn't know nothing. Yeah. Well, what I did you do? That, much, what did you do? Oh, it, was, it was the people. I mean, I was surrounded by most of the guys who I became friends with were about 15 years older than me. Right. And some of them had actually fought in the Vietnam War and stuff like that. So it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I was 30 in 1993. Yeah. And they were sort of 45, 50. And they sort of, you know, bless them, they took me under, my, under their wing and sort of showed me the ropes and taught me about Asia and about culture. And then it, all of a sudden, sort of my eyes opened. Yeah. And I was travelling as well. I mean, did some travelling around the region and discovered how different everything was. I mean, I was in Vietnam in 93, yeah, which yeah. was an extraordinary thing. Yeah, I mean, I the, the Russians were not long gone. Yeah. All of a sudden, like I said, the scales fell from my eyes and I realised that there was a great big world out there. I'd been terribly <laughs> England-centric. Yeah, I mean, you ask true, anyone yeah. who knew me back, back when I was in my 20s. I think uh, one of the things about me moving out here just is you, 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 um, you, you do get this global perspective and you also get a feeling of how lucky you are to... You know, there's a, there's, if you go to, you know... Uh, India or parts of China or even in Vietnam or anywhere there's just this there's just this people living in in pot still you know oh, people, God, people yeah. living in object poverty in cities in, in China and I just find I found it really good for me later in life to to just reflect on that you know whenever anything bad happens to me I just mm. go oh you know it could be hell could be hell of a lot worse yeah uh, I remember there was one week when I went to uh, Jakarta and Manila back to back and both times the taxi driver decided to take the alternate route to the yes, airport yes. and both times it was through like absolute slums yeah. and god it's just and you come back here to clean and you know, pristine Singapore you realise how lucky we are and after Singapore then you what did you do then? so the wheels fell off Wonderman in a spectacular fashion after I mean the dot, <laughs> the, the dot com bubble burst and, it, and, yeah. and we really geared up for that so yeah. that the whole thing and again WPB acquired Y&R which had Wonderman so one, once again I've been bought by Martin Sorrell so I was chasing you and most the, of your career wants yeah, me so badly <laughs> <laughs> um, and exactly the same thing happened I mean so yeah the, they looked at the books and said good god what are you doing it's, we went from 120 people down to about 10 in, oh a, in the space of about 3 months Shit. And uh, yeah, it was like, will the last person leaving please switch off the lights? Yeah, and yeah. I think it was almost me. I was one of the last sort of yeah. regional people to go, and that was yeah, very happy to go because it wasn't it was wasn't the agency I'd grown to love. And Wolfgang had gone sort of a year before. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then Australia, so yeah, Sydney right. for three years. It was quite weird actually. So I I, I got dengue while I was here. Um, Probably from my glasses. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't think, ironically. No, so it was about, it must have been 2003 because it was the same time as SARS. And they spent a long time thinking I had SARS, oh, which was charming. So they, I got picked up eventually and taken to hospital by guys in hazmat suits because wow. I was really out of it. Um, and my yeah, platelets level had fallen and all the rest of it. So they said, well, it's either SARS or dengue, so we'd better take you to a SARS hospital just in case. Yeah. So they took me down to the SARS ward and spent, kept me there sort of the best part of three or four hours, prodding me and taking um, x-rays and all the rest of it. And eventually came in and said, we don't think you've got SARS. So right. thank God for that. So, but we don't, don't really know what you do have. We're going to kick you off to, I think it was Alexandra Hospital. But I spent a week in there in a ten-bed un- Unair conditioned ward 
um, and came out weighing 66 kilos. <laughs> Every cloud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I looked fantastic. Um, but so I, I was already talking to Ogilvy in Sydney, and they said, they'd said, can you come down for an interview? So I got out of the hospital on the Sunday, flew down to Sydney on the Monday, right. um, and had an out-of-body interview on Tuesday. <laughs> I really didn't know where I was. Right. I think they just thought I was really cool and distant, yeah. and I got the job. <laughs> so after the, it was really bizarre. It was tough because you know, Singo was very seriously yeah. involved at the time. And if you, you know, for John Singleton, everyone doesn't know John Singleton. Well, the beast of Australian advertising. He's uh, ran his own agency for many years before selling it to Ogilvy. Yeah, was he was he as bad as uh, all that? Oh, he was pretty terrified. I mean, so I, the, the stories like he'd come in drunk on Monday morning and just tell the staff half you're going to be fired this week and then storm out again. No. Well, I'm sure those kind of things did happen. It right. didn't happen when I was there, I mean, right. he, but he did rule the place with a rod of iron. There was the, a lovely story about he was coming up in the elevator one one morning, and there was a guy in a uh, with a with a skateboard under his arm and shorts and headphones on and a baseball cap on back to front. He was in the <laughs> studio and he was in the elevator beside Singo. Who came in in his in his suit. And it, it refused to acknowledge Singo, didn't know who Singo was, and Singo sort of tailed him as he walked into the office chewing chewing gum. And then Singo eventually just lost the shit and said, You, in my office. The guy went, What the fuck? and didn't realize it was the CEO. And then Singo said, Get your fucking shit and get the fuck out of my agency. I never want to see your face again. You're fired. And apparently, this was something like a Thursday. So the guy is freaked out. He's lost his job. But he very cleverly decides not to tell anyone. And he goes home and he cleans himself up, gets a haircut, shaves his beard. Get some chinos and a, and, a, and a polo shirt, and just arrives in work on Monday, assuming that Singo would a not know his name and b forget to actually think that his wrath would be anything more than so, and proceeded to spend another five years at the agency. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> which I love, which I love that story. Well, there was the no jeans rule. I mean, yeah, yeah, you weren't allowed to wear jeans to the office. Yeah, um, and yeah. if you went out drinking, you weren't to come back. That oh, was another one. Yeah, no, I mean, there was no lunchtime drinking. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, it just did not exist. Yeah, uh, you were all expected to eat, you know, lunch al desco. Yeah, um, so, so <laughs> and m- most people did. Um, yeah, it was it was a strange place from that point of view. Yeah, but I love the fact that yeah, no awards, no entry awards, and that was great. The, yeah. the fact that that wasn't a distraction. You were in a business. Yeah, you were still expected to do great work for your clients, yes. but you were in a business. Yeah, and that great work had to sell. And I, th- I think we actually did do some really, really strong work, particularly on the ugly ones. It was did you go to New Zealand for a bit? Uh, only to see if there was a job there, which there wasn't. Okay. We <laughs> used to, so you're, you're a big fi- you like fishing as well, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's Tasmania where I've got the place. I've got a, uh, a lodge. Which, oh, have you? Yeah, yeah. So we, well, I have a business, in fact. We run, yeah. we run a fly fishing business ah. in Tasmania where we pay, take people fly fishing. And my business partner is the, uh, the Commonwealth Fly Fishing Champion. So uh, I had a friend in Ireland who did this. So do you make your own flies? Yeah. With the little fly kit? Yeah. Well, um, there's nothing quite like yeah, catching a fish on a fly you've made yourself. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. something a bit special. And there's, there's a whole art to it. So you, you, you make the, the, the fly, the fake fly, look like a real fly, and there's different flies for different and fish. Some of them are so tiny. small you can barely see yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. My friend had the whole yeah. sewing kit. Yeah, yeah. Used to sit I've there. still got one at home. Yeah, well. And do you still fish? Uh, very rarely, <laughs> yeah. but no, I, I, I try and get to Tassie about once a year. Um, I love it. Though. So that's. that's uh, do you want to plug it? Is that a place where people can? It go? is a place where people can go. It's called Rainbow Lodge, right. and it's in the central highlands of Tasmania, sort of almost on the shores of the Great Lake. RainbowLodgeTasmania.com.au. Very good. You like trout? Yeah, it's trout fishing. Trout fishing name. Yes. And uh, like I say, so Chris Bassano, who is the the 
my business partner down there and the lead guide. He's just an extraordinary fisherman. And then Asia kept calling you and you decided to come back. Is that what well, happened? Well, well, yeah. Can't, well, the fact that my wife is Singaporean was right. sort of like, ah, oh, right. So, she, so we got married when, when we were living in Australia. Right. And our son was born when we were living in Australia. Right. How many kids have you got? Two. Okay. What yeah. are their names? Uh, Luke and Isla. So Luke is now 11. Okay. And then Isla is 8. Amazing. Um, but so, yeah, and I, but I got this offer from Ogilvy to, uh, to come back here and run uh, the Lenovo business around the region. Yeah. Um, so they said, yeah, would you, would you like to come up and run Lenovo? And I think my wife had started packing the suitcases by the time I got off the phone. <laughs> um, she was, she was very keen to get home. Um, so, yeah, so we came back in 2006. And all through this, the drumming was still going on, was well, it? Well, no, see, I, so I, I drummed from basically 95 to 2003, solidly. I was playing all the time here and didn't play at all in Australia. Really strange. Really? Just for some reason, it, music didn't even occur to me at that time. That's what you were it was your it. having children phase. Yeah, that sort of... Yeah. And, and, and I think having been here for so long, the chance to get outdoors was actually really because I'm a country boy I, mean, I, yeah. I love being outside yeah, yeah. and so yeah I've lived in cities for way too long and the idea to, of being outside was great and I, that's really what I wanted unlike to unlike here we're sitting outside recording this podcast and I am slowly melting like an ice <laughs> lolly here <laughs> it's fun to watch though <laughs> so you took, you took and then when you came back when here came you back, took it up again yeah, is it like all, riding a bike uh, yeah kind of it's really funny actually the, the time when I think I learnt the most was when I was yeah I think it was actually when I was living in Australia because I listened to a lot of music right. and I was kind of analysing what was going on and I discovered when I picked up a pair of sticks again that I'd actually learnt a whole bunch of stuff right. which was so strange because I hadn't played but I'd, I was uh, watching you the other night I said, I said it to you during one of your breaks that you've seen you just I was you know the 10,000 hours thing it's just like <laughs> Mike just looks you just look really confident now it's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel it most of the time and I, I, have, I have this problem which if I, if I think like if you think for even a second you're screwed yeah. You just have to live and breathe the music and just exp- experience it. And then you'll, if you're playing in the music, you're fine. Be like water. Yeah, if you're playing in the music, you're fine. If you think about it, even if you think, oh, this would be a good fill to play here, you suck. You you will forget it. Right. So yeah. It's um, what have you? What are your sort of? Uh, one of the things about these podcasts is they're trying garner some wisdom from people about what they've learned and what they might be passing on to the next generation. <laughs> Probably don't get into advertising might be one. Yeah, that's, that's a really key. Well, no, I mean, I think it was a really good industry. I mean, I, yeah. certainly when I got into it, it was really funny. See, I remember it was kind of like saying you wanted to be a drug dealer. Um, <laughs> I'd like to be a pimp. Yeah. You're a pimp of capitalism, <laughs> basically. That's what we are. Yeah. Well, a pimp of stuff, anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the day that multinationals started owning advertising agencies is the day they put the clients in charge. Yeah. I mean, that's why I've always tried to stay ahead. So when I was out in, in advertising, I used to do a lot of radio because radio was kind of the, the, the technical bit, yeah. or, or I mean commercials as well. But people thought they knew how to make commercials. People didn't really know how to make radio. I used yeah. to do a lot of radio, so I kind of stayed ahead of the clients like that. Go, oh yeah. no, you wouldn't understand. It's very, very technical. You know, yeah, all the, the editing that goes into yeah. this. And at the, t- the time, it was kind of true. Then when we got into do direct marketing, you could still blind the clients with a little bit of science, a little bit of technology because they didn't really understand data. So you could yeah. kind of get them on that one. Then they started to understand data, um, and so. I, again, tried to stay ahead and, and knew that digital was be the, the bit that would, again, with clients wouldn't really get. Right. So I tried to stay ahead and so do you're that. you're going to turn yourself into a robot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, oh my I've, God, we've got no. a robotic creative director. No, I've, 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 I may have had my last day in an agency, <laughs> and I kind of hope I have. Um, look, I mean, it really is 
do something that you're passionate about. I mean, I'm sure everyone would have said that. But there was a time when I was incredibly passionate about about writing. Yes. Um, and about selling and about telling stories. And I still love telling stories. I mean, that's that's still something I get an absolute kick out of. And do, do something you're good at. <laughs> and yeah. do something that do something that that you care about. And music has always mattered. I don't know why I'd never made the connection. I'd always, I'd always thought for years, yeah, how could I make money out of music? Yeah, I'm not good enough to be a professional musician, so I could never make money that way. And, yeah, and I'd never really put it, put it together and, and thought where well, you could market music. And that's what I'm doing now. So explain your new venture then. That's what, that was actually the opening question of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Never getting to. <laughs> <laughs> An hour <laughs> in, yeah. So what I'm doing now is I'm selling music in, in, for, for basically one company, but two different arms. So I work for Sweely. If anyone is a musician in Singapore, they know Sweetly. It's one of the the big old names, and they, they've had always had a music shop since 1946. Where you buy instruments? Or? Where you buy instruments? Right. Yeah, from, since 1946. So we now have seven stores in Singapore, and they've uh, expanded out around the region. They were bought sort of three years ago by a family, yeah, who's quite sort of well known in, in in Asia. The Kwok family now own Sweetly. And uh, so Menkwok is the, the guy who I, I work for. He's amazing. He's 27 years old, so he's half my age. But he's absolutely extraordinary. Ambition beyond belief, yeah. but smart, gets it, amazing vision. So I work for him. Yeah, Sweetly needs to sell. And in the last sort of three years since, since he took over, they've now developed a really good online platform. Okay. So, there's a, so e-commerce is a huge part of what we're doing. We're selling stuff into Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, all the rest of Mainly it. Mainly so guitars? Mostly guitars. Right. Yeah, okay. so there's still a huge market, which is amazing. I mean, you know, in, this day, in this day and age when kids could sit at home yeah. making amazing music on their laptops, yeah. people, kids still want to go out and yeah, buy a guitar and be year old daughter, That was the thing she wanted for her yeah. 16th. Yeah. Guitar, new guitar. Which I think is fantastic. Yeah, and it it's, is. It's so cool. And so, yeah, we, we sell a lot of guitars and a lot of other stuff online. Um, and now, of course, we have social. We are creating because you know, if you think about what music is really all about, it's about communities. Yeah. So yeah, you get a community of metalheads, you get a community yeah, yeah. of punks, you get a community of goths, and yeah, so community of EDM. Yeah, absolutely. We, and right. so we we now have you know, even within Singapore a, a pretty substantial you know, Facebook community, yeah. and we connect everybody, and, and we you know, people will meet each other even uh, you know, through through Facebook. So that's. We're doing that part, which is kind of like a small local online community, and of course we have the community of musicians who exist in Asia anyway. Yeah. So the other part of it is doing something called Band Lab, which is taking sort of community and basically making social music. Mm. Um, and we now have social musicians, so people who can actually make music yeah, without borders. Band Lab is a, a recording tool, so you can you can start an idea on your phone because everything's in the cloud. You can actually then access that from anywhere. So you, if you've got a yeah a lyric idea or you, you want to record you know, four chords on a guitar into your phone you can do all that yeah pretty sophisticated there's a 12 track you know 12 channel mix yeah. editor actually on your phone yeah so you can use that and then when you go back to your, to, to your desktop you know, it's on the web so you've then got MIDI, MIDI keyboards MIDI drum kits all the rest of it and a right. whole bunch of drum loops so you can actually turn out really kind of what I'll call a really sort of high quality demo. Yeah. The great thing is that we now have musicians from you know, like Russia and Brazil working together. Yeah, yeah great. And, and creating extraordinary stuff. What do you think is going to happen to music? Um, well, I think yeah, the, it is going to go. It is going to become a very social thing. I think, and I think it's going to be much much harder. I mean, we all know now that no one pays for music anymore, or yeah. very few people. I mean, yeah. I subscribe to Apple Music and to Spotify, yeah. and I listen to music all the time. 
it's going to be very hard for musicians to make money out of making music. You get people to love the music, and then you can go play a live a live concert. So there'll be lots more money made out of live playing live. Yeah. Well, the other thing is you have to know your stuff as well. You yeah. have to be a really competent musician if you're going yeah, to do that. Exactly. And I think that's great because yeah. it says you better know your stuff. You yeah. better write great songs, take them out there, and play them with skill and passion. Yeah. And 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 really get people to yeah involve in your music that way. Yeah. Where do you see the just more kind of macro? Where do you see the world going? How do you, you've got kid, young kids? What's I your know, it, and it bothers me terribly. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's always that hope that yeah, the kid that you raise is going to be the one who changes things. Yeah. You know, I think everyone has the same hope. But yeah. Yeah. I was born in the week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So I can imagine that my parents were were absolutely freaking out. Are we bringing a child into the world which yeah. is not going to? The world will not exist in a week. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same for all of us now. I mean, that yeah, we look at what's happening with climate change and everything else, and we've got to do something. And, and, yeah, yeah. and, that, and it, it, it really bothers me, the, 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 the apathy the that apathy people seem, the worst seem to have. Thing. Yeah, because you just don't... Even people who do are trying to change something, they seem to come up against it from just, ah, whatever, it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, any regrets? You've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Um, do you know, very, very few. I mean, I've done lots of amazingly stupid things. And I don't regret many of them. I mean, I, and I've done some things which could have been fantastically dangerous as well. No, I, I don't really regret much. I've travelled enormously, yeah, yeah. mostly on other people's dollars, which is great, always yeah. very, very great nice. If I did have one regret, it was possibly that I wasn't honest enough with myself in the last sort of five years when I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. You knew, knew it was a young man's game and everything else, and it, it really wasn't for me anymore. And I should have found something else, something better to do then. Yeah. Um, and I just wasn't honest enough with myself. Yeah. It's hard though to do that. It is. I mean, I mean, particularly if you've got a young family. Well, that was the, that's you know, it. If, if I hadn't had the family, then yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have just I'd walked it. and been very happy to walk. I've been living in Tasmania right now. Yeah. It's very hard to give up the only thing you actually have ever done. I mean, I can pour you a pint of beer, I can serve you a meal, yeah. but that's about it, yeah, other, than, other than write you an ad. Yeah. But again, I'm trying to get into this whole sort of like this thing, and, and, and I've written a play. I mean, I'm trying to use the kind of skills we have from mm. advertising. For me, it was just the sort of inanity of it, the amount of effort and time and brain power and money we were putting into yeah. something that at the end of the day is just shit. I mean, it's just like nobody, you know, occasionally they're good, but usually nobody pays it any attention anyway. Yeah. So either we do it and we get people to pay attention, so we do it well, love that, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of it is just, I'm just wasting time here and, I'm, yeah. and, and burning brain cells and talking on the phone for hours. So I was, I'm trying to kind of work out how the kind of writing, analytical, whatever the hell it is, I can make it into... It, even if it's a shit play that nobody ever sees, <laughs> yeah, but know, at least it's my it. shit play. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that. But, so that I think the moment when I realised it had all gone horribly wrong was when I discovered I, I found myself in a, in a meeting where we were discussing underarm whitening yeah. in Thailand and Indonesia. Yeah. And you kind of go, What? No, it's, it's the a, world it's, ready. It's, it's a thing. No, yeah. we, we, the girl, women need lighter underarms. I thought that's it. It's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. officially gone gone crazy. Um, but yeah, Mike, keep the drumming, drumming, and keep uh, marching to your own drum beat. And <laughs> uh, maybe someday we'll sit over a glass of wine at your uh, lodge in Tasmania, yeah, wondering wondering what we should have done. Definitely, maybe doing another uh, <laughs> podcast over that. That'd be great. A drink more drink involved. Time for us to get a coffee on this Monday morning. Thank you again for listening to Pint with Shawnee B. And thank you, Mike Suckler, for being on the show this thank week. Thank you, sure. Cheers.